You're listening to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Activia. Activia offers a range of yogurts that help support a healthy gut. Your gut is where it all begins. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry. Hello, welcome to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Folks, over the last couple of weeks, we brought you some fantastic international experts. And this week is another one of our international experts. This week, we want to make you happier, not a little bit happier, but 10 times happier. And my guest for this week's show is psychotherapist, former NHS clinical lead and best-selling author, Owen O'Kane. Owen, welcome to Real Health. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. Thanks, yourself. Listen, life is good. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to getting all the content that we need to improve people's happiness. Happiness is always a good thing and getting it 10 times happier is a serious claim to fame. So I'm looking forward to getting all the tips from you. I ask all my guests who come on at the minute, how is life? How has life been over the course of the last couple of months through COVID? Yeah, it's, you know, it's been, it's been tough. It's been, it's been interesting trying to launch a book on happiness in, in kind of one of the most challenging periods I think we, we've ever had really. But you know, to be fair, for me, happiness isn't about, it's not like some fluffy concept. It's about being comfortable in your own skin and being comfortable with life. And I think, um, yeah, I've had to practice a lot of what I preach over the last couple of months. So it's been, it's been an interesting few months, but actually probably no better time to, to release a book that I think can really help people at the moment. So, yeah, I, I'm good. I, I think it's forced people to reflect on life a little bit in terms of what's important, in terms of work-life balance, in terms of just reflection generally. And the fact that for some people, they have been happier over the course of the last couple of months because they've been home more, seeing their family, seeing their partner more. And naturally, they've been that little bit happier. Some people have struggled. I think it's made some people more anxious. And I think other people have been able to stop and take stock of their lives, really, and reevaluate. And I think, you know, like, thing that we know, stability, security, um, being able to travel, flexibility, all of that was taken away quite quickly. So it's been probably one of the, you know, the most massive adjustment periods we've all had in a long period of time. So in terms of what I talk about and what I do, I mean, it really is incorporating all of that and thinking, okay, how can you live and cope better, even in tough times? So it really is a massive testing ground for my work. And let's get stuck into that work straight away. So we're going to talk through the the 10 simple steps and 10 simple tips in the book. The first one is around the past and to stop looking back. Yeah. I mean, look, as a psychotherapist, you see people from every walk of life and, and people come struggling. And I think everyone that comes to therapy wants to feel a bit happier than they are. I think most human beings would acknowledge that they'd like to be a little happier and what I see a lot is I see people getting stuck in the past it's a really tough thing actually because most people come to therapy thinking that they're unhappy because of things that have gone on in their life and that may be true to your point but what I see happening is I see people get in the way of their own happiness and often they do get stuck in the past stuff that's gone on in the past stuff that was disappointment for them stuff that was a challenge for them and the difficulty is that if people stay latched on to the difficulties of the past, then that informs how they live and it informs the future. So a big part of the, the first chapter is about make sense of your past. We're not saying that you get rid of it. Make sense of it and make use of it, but don't be kind of restricted by it, um, particularly the tough parts. I think that is probably the most important thing. And is it fair to say a lot of people like run from their past in some regards and don't want to look back and don't want to kind of address the issues that are there before they move on? 
Yeah, I think it's a fair point. A lot of people do, you know, try to avoid it because, you know, they've had a difficult past or they've had, you know, stuff in their family that was difficult to come to terms with and they do try and run from it. But, you know, I think for most people, the past will catch up on them. And in fact, I was talking to somebody earlier today who is really anxious, really struggles with anxiety, and they've also had a really difficult past, but they've never dealt with it. And what I was trying to formulate with this person was that their anxiety is trying to get them to deal with their past. And I think this is often the thing, is that the thing that we experience in the here and now, particularly the uncomfortable emotions, is about trying to redirect us back and think, okay, what haven't you dealt with? What haven't you processed? And that's ultimately how people move forward. So, yeah, you can't run away from it, but at the same time, what you don't want to do is you don't want to over-attach to it. Okay, so to move forward and to make those healthy changes, be it weight loss, be it overall health, be it lifestyle health, you've got to step back a little bit first, address the issues that are there, and then move on from there. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, you know, salvage what you can, you know, take from it. You know, my own past was quite difficult. I grew up in Belfast, and it was a really tough time to, to grow up in Northern Ireland, and um I had to come out as gay and stuff at a time that wasn't just, it wasn't the thing to do at all, really. Um, but, you know, the difficult moments from my past, what I've been able to do is to turn them around and make use of them and help me develop. So, you know, but equally, there are parts that I've had to let go of. You know, I can't stay over attached to the fact that I was bullied for, you know, all through my teenage years. If I hold on to that, then I become restricted. So it's about, okay, well, that was tough, but actually it taught me a lot. I can move that into my life and use it for my benefit. And area number two, then, is to stop overthinking and get out of your head. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, this is, this is a big one for most people. I mean, we just spend way too much time in our head overthinking, overanalyzing, trying to work stuff out, trying to control stuff. And a big part of my work is to try to get people to just kind of come out of their head more. Because when you're, when you're up in your head all of the time, you're disconnected. You're not really experienced. And you know that thing when you go out, um, I don't know if you've had it, you go out for dinner or you go out for a pint with somebody and they're preoccupied and you can almost watch them think and they're not with you, they're not in the room, they're just in their head the whole time. Um, so part of my work is to help people to, to, you know, to come out of that, that pattern because essentially you're not experiencing anything when you're caught up in your thoughts and when you're caught up in overthinking, overanalyzing. So it's about coming back more into the present moment and learning to disengage. You know, we have about... 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day. So the neuroscientists tell us, and about 60% of those thoughts can be negative in nature. Now, if you've got somebody who's in their head all of the time, it just means it's an uncomfortable way to live if you just stay focused on thinking all of the time. So it's about, you know, realizing that. I'm not saying don't think, but what I'm saying is that sometimes you just need to start living and experiencing a bit more. You'll get a bit more freedom and happiness in that. So that ties in with the whole idea of, I suppose, of mindfulness and being in the moment and kind of focus yeah, yeah. on what you're doing. When you're, so if you're having breakfast, focus on your breakfast. If you're spending time with friends and family, spend time yeah. with friends and family and focus on yeah. them. But it's even more than that, though. The, the, the neuroscientists are brilliant in all the, the research stuff, and they tell us that when, when you're in the moment, and I know it sounds really cliched, and people start to, you know, when you start using that language, I think people think, oh, bloody hell, what's going to come next? When you're, pre- you know, for example, if you're, if you're meditating or you're, even if you're having a cup of tea and you're just focused on having the cup of tea, your attention and your energy is on one thing, which means the mind isn't all over the place. The Buddhists call this monkey mind, you know, where your thoughts just go from one thing to another. 
So when you're present in the moment on one thing, basically what you're doing is you're training your mind to focus better and you're quieting down a lot of the activity in the mind. And essentially what we know is anxiety is overactivity in the mind. So what you're trying to do is to reduce the activity by bringing people back, you know, just deal with one thing at a time, focus on one thing at a time. So essentially you're, you're a personal trainer, um, Carl, so you know about this, you're training a muscle. So by doing that, every time you do it, you increase the flexibility and plasticity of the mind. So even though it sounds cliche, it's a bit like going to the gym. Every time you come back into the moment, you're training the brain to settle down into quieting and strengthening the muscle, which is a good thing. I've, I've never heard someone put, put it that way before, but it's a really great way to put it that, you know, even if for people, they often say, oh, it's very difficult to be calm and it's very difficult to detach from everything else around me and focus on one thing. But you're right. It's training a muscle. It's practice. It's consistency. It's like training for a run or a, an event or whatever. Yeah. It's training the body. And over time, you'll get better at it if you practice. It does. And the thing is, you know, you, you'll know this as a trainer, you know, if you're only rocking up for training occasionally, you're not going to build muscle. You're not going to be fitter. And it's identical. I mean, our, you know, the, the mind is a muscle. If you're not training that regularly, um, it's not going to function in the way you need it to. And you are going to have a chaotic mind that feels like it's on overdrive a lot of the time and thinking too fast. So when, you, when, when I hear people talking about in the moment of meditation and stuff, I think there is a, a natural instinct for a lot of people to switch off. Whereas what I think is actually no. Meditation is about teaching you how to manage your mind, how to slow it down to help you cope better help you you know how to help you function better so it's a it's a brilliant tool okay area number three i love this no regrets brilliant no regrets. yeah yeah <laughs> it's a biggie isn't it and we you know look let's be honest we all we all have regrets and i think it would be abnormal not to have regrets and it kind of almost goes back to what i talk about in the first chapter that if you spend a life you know regretting what could have been what should have been then suddenly it becomes a life of misery. And I see this all of the time. I see people come to therapy and they're embittered and they're angry and they're frustrated because they think, I could have done this, I should have done that. But, you know, the bottom line is the one thing we can't undo. You cannot change what's been. It's impossible. What you can do is you can kind of salvage, okay, what have I learned from that? What would I do differently again? What decisions would I make differently next time around? So it's about really, really encouraging people to think, okay, look, Regrets generally are a waste of time. They achieve nothing. How about looking back and think, okay, what would be different? You know, what would you do differently? What would make it better? How can you move forward? And you know, you can see this play out in very, very extreme ways. You know, when I tell a story in the book about somebody who I worked with actually in London, he was. Um, I used to work with people who were terminally ill for for a long period of time, and I worked with somebody who had given away a child and never told anyone about this. And I was working with this person when they were terminally ill, very, very distressed, very, very upset. And I knew there was something there that they weren't talking about. Um, To cut a very, very long story short, um, this particular lady had lived her entire life completely withdrawn, isolated, quite unhappy. And it was in relation to a secret, this secret about the child that she'd never told anyone about. And her entire life was just basically unhappy because this secret never got divulged until she was starting to die and I was working with her. And and that really impacted me about people being trapped by secrets and regrets. And and she got a bit of freedom in the last couple of weeks of her life. But I just kind of think there's a lot of people living 
with regrets out there. And I think, again, it's about coming back to the concept of happiness. We get in the way of our own happiness. And if people carry regrets, then they block their own personal happiness. So I think, you know, acknowledge what the regrets are, but learn that skill of letting them go. Okay. And it's a powerful skill that, you know, and it, it, the ability to let go of something. Again, takes a little bit of work. It might take some work with a psychotherapist to get there, but it's an important thing to be able to do. I think, too, it's about the humanity of the fact that, you know, we, every one of us have regrets. You all have them. I have them. You know, sometimes we screw up. Sometimes we get it wrong. That's part of being a human being. And it's about that sort of self-compassion as well, about allowing yourself to get it wrong, you know, and realize that things are not perfect, that we are not perfect, um, and just about picking yourself up again and think right okay well that wasn't great but on the upwards we move on you know so it's again about flexibility isn't it you know the more flexible we can be with ourselves the happier we are you're, you're an optimist obviously by trade i would imagine just some chatting to you already actually it's not even about being an optimist i think i'm just a practical realist and i just kind of think you, you can't do what i do in my line of work when you're just kind of watching people trip up every day and when you're watching people block you know, really get in the way of their own lives. And I suppose in some ways that teaches you to think, actually, we have choices in all of this here. We don't have to fall into these patterns. There are choices in what we do. And I suppose as well, I spent 10 years of my career, as I mentioned earlier, working with people who are terminally ill. And I think when you've done 10 years of that and you're watching people from like 17-year-olds right up to older people facing their own mortality, you can't help but think, we're, we're here for a short time. You know, there's, there's no point screwing this up and getting too caught up in the stuff that doesn't matter. So am I an optimist? Well, I don't know. Maybe I am. Maybe a little bit. But I also think, I also believe that you just, you just grab life and opportunities and move forward. And that brings us nicely to area number four, the worry trap. Per, per, perfectly, perfectly aligned with no regrets. Again, tell us a little bit about that. I think worry for most people, particularly at the moment, actually worry is a massive problem. And if you look at the textbook definition of anxiety, it's, a, it's basically an intolerance of uncertainty. And the one thing that we have at the moment above everything is we have a lot of uncertainty. It's the one thing that's guaranteed at the moment, but people don't like uncertainty. And if you've got a natural intolerance to uncertainty, then you're going to be anxious and you're going to fall into worry traps. And this chapter, I talk specifically about how we contribute to our own worries, because often without even realizing that we can see worry as a good thing. And people often worry, believing that it's actually going to get them out of the situation or it's going to improve the outcome. Whereas what we know from all the research is that 90% of what we worry about never comes to anything, which is a huge number. You know, and even the 10% of things that we do worry about, most of them don't have the catastrophic outcome of what we predict. So in real terms, most of what you worry about or what I worry about will never come to anything. So worry is a waste of time. However, it's a very natural mechanism. And the problem is if people don't realize that they get caught up in worry patterns by, for example, buying into worry as a good thing, overthinking situations, believing that if they worry more, they're going to prevent something bad happening. If people get caught up in that trap, then they stay very, very anxious. So it is really, uh, it really is about, this chapter is about helping people see the traps that they fall into. And I see this every day in clinical practice. 
And if you are someone who, who worries a lot, presumably chat and talk and the ability to chat those worries away is a really good thing to do. It is to your point, but the, he, here's the problem. And it, again, it falls into the, the kind of the worry trap thing. If people are constantly, say, for example, Carl, we were friends in the real world and I was a worrier and I kept ringing you up every day saying, Carl, I'm worried about this, I'm worried about that. And you kept reassuring me. Well, in psychology terms, we call that safety behaviors. So actually, you might think you're doing me a favor and I might feel better short term because you reassured me. But the bottom line is that until people learn to reassure themselves and stop seeking reassurance by talking over and over and over again, they fall into the trap of worry. So while at one level we'd be encouraging people to talk and to, to get their concerns out, what we don't encourage is people to seek assurance over and over and over again because that maintains the loop of worry. Okay, great. And we chat about other people there. The next one I'm absolutely intrigued by, uh, Why Hell is Other People, a fantastic title for a chapter if ever there was one. Hell is Other People, yeah, that could be a self, <laughs> couldn't it really? I mean, it, I mean, if you look at all of our lives, I mean, none of us have perfect relationships and we all have people in our lives who are difficult and we all have people in our lives who make life very, very difficult and that can be professionally or personally. And I think the one thing I talk about in this chapter is that every one of us are acting out our own stuff all the time, whether it's our self-doubt, insecurities, whether we have a chip on our shoulder, people are playing out their behaviours all of the time. And I think what, what often happens in the real world is people are constantly colliding, you know, because nobody's really dealing with their own stuff. And I suppose in this chapter what I talk about is that often people behave badly and it's really about understanding when people are behaving badly and why they may be behaving badly and not personalising it. Because I think often when we're dealing with difficult people, the intuitive, natural thing to do is to take it personally and think it's about us, when actually more than often it's about the other person. And there's a great skill when you've got somebody in your life who behaves badly or acts out all the time. There is a real great skill in being able to stand back and not personalise it and see it for what it is, which is them acting out something and not buying into it. And I suppose really learning that skill of knowing when you've been triggered. I mean, I know, I know what my buttons are. I know when I've been triggered. I know what winds me up. So, for example, if, if somebody underestimates me, that will press my button, and it, it, it always has done. But I need to know that about myself, because if I don't, then I'm likely to react, in, in, in possibly inappropriately or not in the right way. So it's really about not only understanding other people's behaviour and why they may be behaving the way they're doing, but also understanding that we have to take responsibility for our own reactions to other people. Um, and then suddenly life becomes a bit easier then because, you know, you do depersonalise it and then you're less likely to be triggered. Okay. Folks, you're listening to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. We're halfway through our top 10 ways to improve your happiness with author Owen O'Kane. Some really brilliant content so far and we've lots more tips to come. Oh, and tip number six is kick the habit. Kick the habit, yeah. I mean, this is really about behaviours. I mean, you know, no matter who we are in life, we, we will all have some sort of habit that we use to comfort or to manage. And, you know, for some people that may be booze or drugs or for other people it may be food, sex, shopping, it can be anything. But I think as human beings, we often latch on to habits as a way of coping with something. And again, it's about recognising, you know, um, a lot of people come to therapy and they'll talk about all sorts of stuff that are going on in their life, but they will also talk about habits 
that short-term help them cope and give them a bit of ease, but actually longer-term create lots of difficulties in their life, their relationships, finances, their future. So it's about, this, this chapter is kind of quite hard-hitting in a way. It's about getting people to stop and to really take a look at themselves and say, okay, you know, what habits do you help have in your life that help you, you know? Measured against what are the habits that you participate in that actually block your life, get in the way of your life, hold you back? Because again, you know, the easy, you know, it's part of our DNA as human beings. We always want to externalize. We always want to say it's because he did that, she did that. It's because this happened. When actually it's about, but you need to acknowledge that your contribution to your habits are part of the problem. And it's a bit like if somebody has got an addiction to alcohol or drugs, um, you know, the breakthrough only happens when they acknowledge there's a problem. So it's about getting, you know, it's about responsibility, essentially. Yeah, so if you want to get happier, you've got to look back, you've got to take responsibility for yourself and so really get to know yourself a little bit. And as part of the next, the next area is stop, to stop blaming others and take responsibility. Yeah. I mean, this is, a, this is a hard chapter. I mean, I... I to be honest, it's probably my favorite chapter to write because I think it's probably the most empowering thing you can do for somebody. Because, look, as a therapist and a writer, there are a lot of self-help books out there that will give you a lot of fluff and a lot of loveliness and a lot of platitudes and chant this and you're better. And I just kind of think it's not my style and it's not how I work at all. I really do believe that you do not change. Your life does not change until the moment you stop and take responsibility for it. It really becomes about, I don't, you know, look, I'm not saying, I know that people listening to the podcast today, there will be people listening who have had really difficult lives and terrible things happen in their life. So it's not to minimize or discount any of that. But it's also about the recognition that that can't be changed or undone, the difficult stuff. What can be changed is how you respond to life and how you move forward. And the only person that can do that is you. It's about taking full ownership and full responsibility that if I'm unhappy today or I'm bitter today or I'm resentful today, I have to take responsibility for that. And I think that's the same for every human being. And it, it, it's always quite entertaining as therapists, really. There is a period in therapy where it's like a tug of war. And when you're trying to impart this to someone that they really need to step their game up and start holding responsibility and ownership, you can feel the resistance for a while where people want to say, yeah, yeah, but I've had a terrible time and you don't understand. And I, you know, and I do understand, but I also know that if I just give them pity and platitudes and tell them how awful it is, then they're stuck and they will be stuck. I see people in therapy sometimes for 10 years and they don't move forward because, you know, they're maybe working with a therapist who is, you know, kind of embellishing this here and, you know, almost colluding with the person saying, yeah, it is terrible and how awful. I think you actually don't do anyone any favours by doing that. There's about, okay, let's make sense of it, but hold responsibility. Okay. And the next area is when we talk about all the time on the show. It's stop comparing yourself to others. A really important one in the Instagram generation and those who are stuck to their phones in terms of social media. There's lots of this going on and it makes people absolutely miserable. It, it's an interesting one. I, I wasn't on Instagram until my, my first book came out. I mean, genuinely... I mean, I've got a, a quite a nice community on there now and it's great to interact with people. But man, I didn't know what a hashtag was two years ago. And that <laughs> hands up. So, I mean, it was hilarious for me to go on Instagram. But it was a big surprise, actually, because I, I could see what was happening on there. You go on 
and it's a human being, you look at perfect lives. I mean, you know, most of the time on Instagram, the images are colourful, they're nice, people look well. You get the best versions of people on Instagram, let's be honest. And if you're having a shit day, pardon the expression, and you go on Instagram and you see everyone else living their best life, yeah, well then, it's only natural that your mood's going to collide and drop a bit. And I think, you know, the danger with Instagram is that, or any of the social media forums, you just have to take so much of it with a pinch of salt. You know, what you see in there is a, you know, a millisecond or a microcosm of someone's life. It's not the, the, the full picture. And I think this chapter really is about the dangers of comparing, you know, your life, not only your life, but even in our, in our own lives and our own professional careers. You know, I think if you focus on your journey, your passion, what motivates you and you stay focused in that direction. It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing or, or what rate they're moving or how far they've got or it doesn't matter because, you know, I, I see, I treat people all over the world and I see people, you know, from A-list celebrities to people on the other end of the spectrum. And what I've learned is it doesn't matter. Somebody can appear to be at the top of everything and they still really, really struggle. But you could, you could look at that person and think they have everything. And, and it's not the case. And I kind of think, I work with the premise that I think most people at some level struggle and suffer. So if I ever find myself falling into the trap of idealizing someone else's life and thinking, oh my God, that they look great or they're perfect or they seem really, really happy or they seem to be <laughs> together, I also remind myself, and they're also probably struggling and suffering with something that I know nothing about at all. So I think there's a real freedom in that there, actually. And I suppose, again, it's one of the perks of my job you actually, you know, you get a real insight into the fact that nothing is ever what it seems in anyone's world. Area number nine, high drama living. Yeah, this is another interesting one, isn't it? I mean, and I think, again, a tough, a tough chapter to write, but, you know, often we create dramas in our life. You know, we create dramas by the people we surround ourselves with, the choices we make, the decisions we make, how we enter, how we deal, how we fall back into you know, decisions that we've, you know, things we've done in the past that we think, well, that didn't work out. And then we go back and we repeat the same stuff over and over and over again. And I think there is an addiction on it. This is why soap operas are so popular, you know. Um, I do some advice on on soap operas and on their mental health storylines. And what's really, really fascinating about it is that scripts only work a lot of drama because that pulls people in. And I think in the real world, there's a danger that happens a bit as well. You know, this is why... Soap operas, um, your Love Island, all of these type of shows and stuff, people tune in because they love the drama, they love the conflict. And I think there's a danger that that now spills into everyday life where people almost get caught up in the fact that, you know, if life isn't high intensity and dramatic, there's something missing. And actually, drama creates a lot of distress for people. And I think, again, it's about coming back to responsibility. If you're going to invite lots of drama into your life, you're going to invite lots of distress into your life. So it's about minimizing the drama and keeping it more level. And then the final habit is living in the now. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of coming back to what we talked about earlier, this kind of, you know, being present in the moment. And, you know, as cliched as it might sound, you know, you can't change anything that's been. We have zero control. And I think, you know, the whole COVID-19 thing has taught us that. We don't really have control over what's going to come next. And the power, really, I mean, it was a brilliant book years ago, The Power of Now. There's... There's real power in coming back into what you have now because, look, 
for most of our lives, managing today is enough, isn't it? You know, most of us are busy. We've got lots to do. We've got concerns. We've got practical stuff to do. More than often, just managing the now is more than enough. You are trying to manage the now, measure it against trying to hold on to your past and measure it against trying to live the future and predict what's going to come next. No wonder people become overwhelmed because we are not designed to carry that level of weight. You know, it's literally psychological burden coming back more and more and more to the fact that the only thing you've got to manage is now. Just let today be enough. Tomorrow will look after itself. And it's been... So it's really simplifying like more. But, you know, if you look at some of the happiest people in the world, if you look at how monks often live or people who adopt this lifestyle, you know, when, they're, when, when the researchers look at them, they're often the happiest people on the planet. So what we know from the research is the more you can be present and in the now, the happier a human being you're going to be. And that's clinically evidenced. Folks, at the start of this episode, we told you we would give you 10 very simple ways to improve your happiness. Owen has given us a brief insight into those 10 ways. Owen, if people want to find you, where can they find you online? So Instagram and Twitter, so my handles, um, OwenOkane10, all one word. Um, the book's 10 popular. It's available now in stores and Amazon and all the usual outlets. Um, and I do create content. I create video on Instagram. I create videos and um, regularly, actually. And I think that's been mega helpful for people. Just very short, sharp tips on managing anxiety, low mood, addictions, whatever the context might be. I try to show up regularly and create stuff. And it's a very warm and directed community. So anybody who's on Instagram. Fantastic. Oh, no, Kane, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of Real Health. Folks, at the start of today's episode, I told you we'd bring you very simple tips to improve your happiness. And we've done exactly that. Apply those tips over the course of the next seven days and you'll be that little bit happier. As ever, you know where we are, at Carl Henry PT on Twitter and on Instagram. Now we're on YouTube too. All our episodes are up and full video content are on YouTube. So check them out there. And it's realhealth at independent.ie for any questions or queries you may have. Have a great week. Apply those tips and we'll see you next week. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry.